but my name is Cameron DeVazier, and I am a pastor from the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and I'm out here in Loma Linda. And I want to thank you so much for your hospitality. It is 74 and sunny today. It is what we like to call not Michigan here. And so thank you for having that in abundance. I appreciate it. And I honestly don't particularly know the demographic of our congregation this morning, uh, this afternoon, whatever line we're on there. Uh, but I assume that we're all at least Bible-believing Christians, or at least interested in being Bible-believing Christians, or don't mind eating free food next to Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> Something in that spectrum of people. Uh, by the look of the congregation, to be honest, I, I assume many of you are Seventh-day Adventists, as most of you sat in the back at a religious service. Um, <laughs> but I do want to commend those brave souls who ventured within the first four rows, and, and uh, you know, blessings on you and your house. And for the rest of you, if you can hear my voice and see the screen, we're going to be okay today. But I wanted to share with you just a couple of messages today. Uh, I believe it was advertised as, by all means, sketches from the life of Paul. And that statement comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul talks about his gospel outreach methodology. Okay? This is not necessarily the doctrine of Paul, like you might get into in a study of Romans or something like that, but this is literally how Paul preached what he preached. How did he convey his message? And Paul says some pretty interesting stuff. In one place he says things like, to a group of believers, he's like, uh, I caught you with guile or craft and cunning. He's like, I tricked you and I got you here with free food or whatever. Um, but in, in, in the statement comes, by all means, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he kind of, again, explains his thinking. And he basically says in verse 22, I have become, and you probably know this, you might know this, I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. I've become all things to all men, so, but by all means, I might save. And his goal wasn't to save all. I mean, obviously, he'd like to save all, but his expectation is, man, if I can put it all out on the line and save some, that's a good day's work. And so what I want to do in these two messages is very, very straightforward, very simple. I want us to study some instances, some encounters, experiences, or sketches, as we call them, from the life of Paul, from the Bible and the inspired sources that comment on it, and understand how he went about being a Christian, a Bible-believing, gospel-presenting, spirit-led Christian in the day and age in which he lived. You understand he was the God's ambassador to the Gentile world, and he was in a pagan environment. How did he represent the present truth that he had been given by God in a world that maybe wasn't ready to hear it? How do you do that? By all means. So before we dive into our study today, entitled Cutting Timothy, um, I want us to just quickly bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we're going to launch into a study of God's word. So if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this absolutely gorgeous day, and I want to thank you for the opportunity, these few precious minutes you've given us to be together. Please, Lord, I would ask that you send the Holy Spirit, as you have promised, to enlighten our minds, to see your truth, and not just in a theoretical information way, but Lord, transform us into your image and put into practice the things that we learn. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 16. If you have your Bibles with you, and if I was in a church, I would say since you have your Bibles with you, but I assume that you don't, so I've got it on the screen, and uh, the pertinent passages will be available, so you can just, you know, think. That's all I want you to do is focus and think. But in Acts chapter 16 is the first mention in the Bible of a young man named Timothy. 
Acts chapter 16, a young man named Timothy. Now, we're not quite to that part yet, but we basically get five verses introducing us to Timothy. And by verse 3, Paul has him circumcised. Basically, he says, behold, there is a man named Timothy. Paul walks in and he says, hey, let's cut you. And it's a pretty abrupt opening, honestly, to this introduction to Timothy. And we're going to find out why, at least the burden of our study, to see why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? Why did he cut him, especially at the time when he did? So it's actually a fascinating study. So in order to introduce Timothy, though the Bible mentions him specifically in Acts 16, we really have to go back to Acts chapter 14. And that's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Here's the Apostle Paul faced a lot of persecution, in fact, all the time. Opposition, persecution, fault-finding, just a mess. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So it was a very full beating, if you will. They really thought they had done their job, and they were dragging him off to dispose of the body outside the city wall. However, when the disciples gathered around him, now, I want you to think about that for a moment. He was dragged off by these people, left for dead after being stoned to apparently a pulp enough they thought the job was done. They dropped him off there, but believers came around him. He had been in that city. He had been raising up new believers, preaching the word, and these new believers come around and huddle around Paul just to give respects to his body and honor his, his, his work. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, which had to be startling. And it said he did what? went into the city. He got back up and kind of dusted and went back into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So he just got back up, went and spent the night in the same place that threw him out and then continued his journey. Now, why is that significant in our story about Timothy? Well, and the inspired commentary on this, we read, among those who had been converted at Lystra and who were eyewitnesses of the sufferings of Paul was one who was afterward to become a prominent worker for Christ and who was to share with the apostle the trials and the joys of pioneer service in difficult fields. This was a young man named Timothy. Right? So think about this, a young man, it doesn't, the Bible never tells us how young, the spirit of prophecy never mentions how young, but every time his name is mentioned, they always use the adjective young or youthful, or something like that. So he was more than normally young, okay? So you just say he's a youth or young adult, okay? And he watches, he hears the message of Paul and is converted to Christianity, and then he watches Paul suffer for that, for that cause to the point of death. Then he gathers around him and Paul raises up miraculously, and for a young man, there's nothing he wants to be than like that hero. And Paul was his hero, right? When Paul was dragged out of the city, this youthful disciple was among the number who took their stand beside his apparently lifeless body and who saw him arise, bruised and covered with blood, but with praises upon his lips because he'd been permitted to suffer for the sake of Christ. What a crazy thing. Paul gets up and doesn't say, oh, he's like, that was great. Do you guys know what I did there? I almost died for Jesus. Let me go back in there. And to young Timothy... I mean, the message of Christ, but to see it reflected in the person of Paul had to be shocking, had to be astounding and life-altering. It really changed him. Then it says he came to Derby and Lystra, back to the scripture now in Acts chapter 16. And this is where we get the second meeting now. So in Acts chapter 14, Timothy was one of those young disciples looking at Paul as he raises up. Now in Acts chapter 16, just two chapters later, he meets Paul for the second time. 
Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now, this is going to be important. His mother, and we're going to find out, grandmother had taught him the Jewish faith. They were Jewish, but his father and his household, therefore, was Greek. He was Gentile. So he grew up in a mixed home, if you will, spiritually speaking. And when Paul came along, he wasn't just Jewish and he wasn't Greek, but he was Roman and he was Hebrew and he had been a Sadducee and on the Sanhedrin, but now he's accepted Christ. And it's, this is a pivotal moment for Timothy. He's making some big decisions. And it says in the Bible that he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. He was a really good kid, a good guy. Okay. And again, Acts of the Apostles, page 202. Here Paul again met Timothy, who had witnessed the sufferings at the close of his first visit to Lystra, and upon whose mind the impression then made had deepened with the passing of time, until he was convinced that it was duty to give himself fully to the work of the ministry. So think about that. He witnessed the sufferings of Paul, and Paul's been away two chapters worth, which we're going to see is quite a while here. But he comes back. Paul comes back around, and there's Timothy, a little older, Still young, but older, but more and more convinced that what he needs to do in life is be like Paul. He wants to be like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen someone who gets a really, you're probably going to see it in a few weeks when people make New Year's resolutions. They make these bold statements, definitive plans. I'm going to do this. I'm going to lose this much weight and climb this many mountains and, you know, find this, well, hopefully only one spouse, but they're, they're going to make a, a big change in their life. But you come back six weeks or six months later, same old, same old. Paul, I would imagine, had a lot of people who were interested in his ministry, but he'd come back later and they were kind of gone. But not so with Timothy. He was still on point. And it goes on to say, his heart was knit with the heart of Paul, and he longed to share the apostles' labors by assisting as the way might open. I want to take it, I want to take stones like Paul did. Okay? So back to Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. He said, if you want to come with me, we're going to have to cut you. He's like, how's that? He's like, yeah. If you want to work with me, we've got to get you circumcised. He's like, well, I'm, I'm not a baby. I'm kind of a, <clears throat> I'm a young man now, and that's not fun. Sure. He's like, yeah. Everybody knows your dad was Greek. You think we go to preach to Jews and they're going to ask, and we're going to have to be honest, so we might as well just get the job done now. Come on. Now, what's interesting about Acts chapter 16, verse 3, I mean, take that verse alone. Okay, he said, I guess it's pragmatic. You go and circumcise him. But what's fascinating about Acts chapter 16, verse 3, is Acts chapter 16, verse 4, the very next verse. Okay, watch this. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Well, what were the decrees to keep? What is that a reference to? They were going on a missionary journey into Gentile territory with a document in hand that had been published by the church leaders in Jerusalem about what was required of Gentile converts. 
So in order to understand the significance of cutting Timothy, we need to go back and figure out what was on this document. What, was the, what were these decrees delivered to them? So we need to go back to Acts chapter 14. After Paul woke up from his you know, deathbed, his near-death experience, he heads back, and it says, And when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So he wakes up from his, uh, his, his stone-induced stupor, goes back to that city, and then marches right back on and telling everybody, this is how the gospel's got to be preached. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to be suffering. But we're going to keep marching on. Now, it mentions there Antioch. Antioch is where the trouble is going to start that leads to those decrees that the, the leaders in Jerusalem had to write down. What went on in Antioch? And what, was, what was the significance for our study today? Well, to understand that, we need to go all the way back very quickly to Acts chapter 1. How the gospel came to Antioch. You see, when Jesus is still with them in the very first chapter of Acts, here with his original 12 disciples, well, 11 at that point disciples, he made this statement. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's a reference to what would happen in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. Yes? Okay. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And he outlines what becomes the outline to the book of Acts. Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Christ says, you guys are going to be the builders of the church in my name. You're going to be the witnesses for my ministry. And you're going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to expand to go to Judea and Jerusalem, and finally to the ends of the earth. This is a clear call that at some point the gospel is going to go beyond just the Jews in Jerusalem. It's going to go to the Gentiles, every heathen, pagan. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. That was God's plan. And that sounds very good, but what you realize is from Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost all the way to Acts chapter 6, the church and the leaders of the church, even the disciples, kept making more and more converts from the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. But they never went to Judea and Samaria, or at least not yet. And the church, and you see the Bible uses language like, and they were added to their number, and they multiplied, or they greatly increased. And this, Jerusalem was becoming a Jewish convert megachurch, a big glut. But it wasn't going out to where Christ is said to go. So something happened that kind of pushed them over the edge. And you read about it in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first chosen deacons of the early church, made his stand for the truth against the Jewish leaders who did not believe, the Sanhedrin leaders, and he died for his faith. He was the first Christian martyr. And it says, as a result, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at where? Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, which still all at Jerusalem. And this is very, very important. And they were all what? Scattered where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now I want to point out that this is the launching point to get out of Jerusalem was a push of persecution. If you read the commentary on this, Mrs. White is very clear that God used this as a necessary kick. Get out. There was danger to become very comfortable right there in Loma. <coughs> <laughs> you know? I'm... I, 
I'm giving you a hard time. I'm from Michigan, the birthplace of all Adventism. I understand what it's like to be just around these people. But it was a very comforting thing. Oh, this is my place. This is my people. This is good. I'm right here. And God says, but you know, there are other people that need to hear this message. So how about you go? And they say, well, how about we stay? <laughs> and he's like, go. And it says, they were all scattered out the region of Jesus. And please underline this. Except whom? The apostles. The only people who stayed behind in Jerusalem were the apostles. Everybody else left out. So that means they who were scattered were lay members. They were not the apostles. They were not the ordained man, uh, evangelists and ministers. They were just lay members. They said, man, they're really crunching down on Christians. Let's get out of here. And they went to Judea and Samaria. The apostles stayed behind. Now, which leads us to Acts chapter 11. How far did they go, these scattered disciples from Jerusalem? Now, this is Acts chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and here's our city in focus, Antioch. Okay. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. <laughs> okay, so he got them out of Jerusalem, but he still couldn't get them past the talking to other people stuff. So everywhere they went, they would, hi, do you have any, any Jews here? I have good news for them, you know. And he would, they would go and talk to all the Jews. So they were making converts along the way, and God was adding to the church, but they couldn't cross that Jew-Gentile bridge. But, watch this. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. So they happened to be in Jerusalem when the persecution got out. They got out with the rest of them, but their hometown was Cyprus and Cyrene. And they thought, well, we talk to other people all the time. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And thus the work scatters to the Gentiles broadly for the first time. By the way, this is Acts chapter 11. It's Acts chapter 10 that Peter had to be kicked over to Cornelius to talk to him, a Gentile. So even the leaders in Jerusalem, and remember he had to be told three times with the dream of the sheet, you know, go, go, go. And when he finally went, he took some witnesses so he didn't get in trouble. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Watch this now. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So word gets back to those in Jerusalem who are the apostles and leaders. Man, the work is going so well. Praise the Lord. We're winning Jews and Jews and Jews and even some Gentiles. What? We need to send someone. Barnabas. Go see what's going on. So Barnabas treks off to see if this is just some emotional fact, or is this genuine conversion? Are they watered down the truth? Have they, have they rounded off the corners and now our, 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 our distinctive message is getting eliminated? Are these people truly coming to Christ? Let's go see. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek whom? Saul. Notice he didn't send to Jerusalem to get Saul. Saul was down in Tarsus. 
And he says, you know who would be good to help lead out this work among the Gentiles? That newly converted man, or later in life converted man, Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So that's how the gospel came to Antioch. It started with lay members of the church giving Bible studies or sharing their faith, witnessing for Christ to other people outside of their faith group. And believe it or not, there was conversion. And the people in Jerusalem didn't believe it. They were, seriously, they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas says, it's great. And he goes and gets Paul. And they spend a year building up the church in Antioch. But of course, the Jewish persecution, those who did not like the Gentiles, did not like Saul's work with them. So you notice from that time on, there's always a pressing after Saul, and, or as he would be later, Paul. On the next Sabbath, for instance, the example, Acts chapter 13. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with what? Envy. They were fine with the message going, but as soon as the number of Gentiles started to outnumber the number of Jews receiving the message, er. and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, so notice this is the methodology of Paul. He doesn't mind rolling up his sleeves and saying something when the time is right. He said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. You've never heard a sermon make that appeal. But Paul said some stuff. And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. I'm guessing that didn't go over well. Here's another example. Now it happened in Iconium that they were together to this, they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, a part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both Jews, Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia into the surrounding region. That's Acts chapter 14. So he fled to the next city and what they do? Stoned him. So he was escaping a stoning when he got stoned at the next place. Notice this now. Same chapter, then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead, and this is where Timothy meets Paul. Okay, this is just a review of history, walking through the progression of the church. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. We're in Acts chapter 14 now. And it was in Acts chapter 16 that we find the cutting of Timothy as he joins Paul in his missionary efforts. So the real question is, what happened in between? What happened in Acts chapter 15? Now, if you're students of the Bible, you're probably aware that this was the first general conference session in church history to deal with the question of circumcision. So it's no wonder that Acts chapter 15, verse 1, opens with, And certain men came down from Judea to Antioch, 
and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? Notice they didn't say, say you can't even be members of the church. They're saying you can't even be a member of the kingdom of God. You cannot be saved, period, unless you go through this rite. It's literally to them a salvation issue. It's a prerequisite for redemption. Now, Paul had a problem with this because it wasn't true. Okay? But they stir up the people with this Judaizer message, if you will. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas, the Bible is so kind, had no small dissension and dispute with them. Isn't that a sweet way? It was not small. It was not a small dispute. It was a big old fight. Right? Paul, the same one who says, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. We're going to the Gentiles. Now they come and mess with him again. Do you think it was a small dispute? Apparently, according to the Bible, it was not a small dispute. But here's how they resolved it this time. Instead of picking up stones to crush his skull as they've tried, I'm guessing they stopped trying that because it, you know, didn't work. Because <laughs> they've tried over and over. Let's, let's oppose them. Let's talk bad about him, gossip about him. Hey, let's just kill him with rocks. And it doesn't work. So they said, aha, here's our plan. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now remember, the apostles and elders never went and we were scattered. I'm guessing that these Judaizers thought, you know what, we're going to get a favorable result from the general conference session. So why don't you go see the brethren in Jerusalem? And Paul says, fine, my argument is right, let's go. Dun, dun, dun. So being sent on their way by the church, they pass through, I love this, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. They didn't stop talking about what the Lord was doing through the Gentiles all the way to Jerusalem. Hey, doing great work for the Gentiles, going to go to Jerusalem. Doing great work for the, they just tell everybody. They said, let's open it up to the world to see. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. He's like, do you realize he's just making Christians and not making Jewish Christians? You better make a decree So you have this dispute amongst, I want to be clear about this, amongst the leaders of the church about this question. And I want you to be clear about what the question is. The question is not about circumcision. The question is about mandatory circumcision. Do you see the difference? Okay. They're not answering, is it okay to be, no, it's fine to be, you do whatever you want with circumcision. You just can't require it of converts. That's the issue that Paul had. But that was the issue on the table. It's necessary. Now, we're just going to walk through what happened in Acts chapter 15. Now, when the apostles and elders came together, considered this matter, and now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, now, out in the field in Antioch, it was kind of a no small dissension and dispute, but you'd think in the hallowed halls of the Apostles' Fellowship that there would be harmony and camaraderie and brotherly. No. 
What happened there? Much dispute. By the way, how do, how do we resolve difficult doctrinal questions when there seem to be two sides arguing equally vociferously with proportional vehemence? What do you do? Well, Peter knows what to do. He says, I know what to do. I'll talk. <laughs> Peter, if you, if you know anything about the Bible, everywhere the, the apostles say something, it's always through Peter. He's the <laughs> spokesman. And he's kind of like Babe Ruth. Sometimes he knocks it out of the park. And about half the time he, you know, doesn't. But this time, notice what he does here. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is he referring to? Remember? He's referring to his experience with Cornelius, the vision of the dream. He's like, the Lord showed me in vision. He gave me a prophetic insight and sent me on my way. You know this. In fact, I took witnesses. You can go read in Acts chapter 11. I told you the whole story. You know that God has called us to go reach the Gentiles. Peter stands up in defense of what's going on. You know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart... Notice the implication is, ah, oh, how do we know it's genuine? Well, God knows the heart. Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Remember at the close of the, of the Cornelius interview, the Holy Spirit came down just like it was the day of Pentecost, except now it was on Gentiles. And that's when Peter said, ha, huh, I guess God loves them too. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He said faith is the active ingredient in salvation, not a physical ceremony. And then he adds, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now I'll give you a pause for a moment. I'm not, I'm not throwing those Jewish leaders under the bus. The Gentile pagans were a mess morally. I mean, immorality, idolatry, I mean, the things they're eating and drinking and doing and, and, and endorsing and advocating. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And you can imagine the fear from the Jewish leaders. Hey, if the gospel goes to the Gentiles and they're not genuinely converted, our, our faith is gone. And so they wanted to impose these, number one, as a test, a demonstration of loyalty and sincerity to show that it is truly converted. But then Peter brings up the point, if circumcision made you truly converted, we wouldn't have killed Christ. Because all of us were circumcised. Right? He said it didn't do a miraculous work. We couldn't bear it. It didn't do anything for us. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. There's one salvation for Jews and Greeks, and it's apart from external things like circumcision. And I'm guessing Paul was like, go, Peter. Go ahead, son, preach. Right? Look at the miracle that happens. Then all the multitude did what? Kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. They're like, yeah, Peter had a really good point. Sorry about that, Paul. What were you saying? He said, thank you. Let me tell you what happened in Lystra, in Derby, in Iconium, 
in Antioch. And after they had become silent, James, which by the way, Peter was not the head of the early church. James was. Just throwing that out there. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first has visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. And then he quotes Amos chapter 9. So he says, all right, here's our decision. First of all, it's based on a clear understanding of the scripture. We have clarifying insight from the gift of prophecy. Therefore, here's our practical application. Which, friends, that's a fantastic method for arriving at scripture truth. Bible, spirit of prophecy, and whatever decision comes out, okay, from those sources. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things. But notice there are some conditions to salvation still. It's like you can't just, we're not just saying, all right, no circumcision and live however you want. There's lifestyle things, right? Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. So people are like, great, I don't have to be circumcised. Can I still sleep around? No. From moral issues, there's still transformation that needs to happen, right? From sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood, even apparently diet and lifestyle things. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among them brethren. So they're going to send out this delegation with Paul and Barnabas at the lead to deliver this message. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, and notice this, to whom we gave no such commandment. They were not officially sent. These are self-sent, zealous crazies. Okay. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. So sweet. Being assembled with one accord. Okay. To send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So whatever they're about to list there are necessary conditions. The abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. What is conspicuously missing from the necessary list of conditions? Circumcision. That's what's on the decree. It's a decree that specifically says you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Acts chapter 15 ends. Oops. And it runs naturally into Acts chapter 16. Where he says, hey, Timothy, you want to help me deliver this letter that says you don't have to be circumcised? He's like, yeah, that'd be great. He's like, good, let's get you circumcised. The very first thing Paul does after winning this war is to turn around and have Timothy circumcised. Why? Let's learn a few lessons as we close. Important lesson for Acts chapter 15. Number one, church order. The church is neither a dictatorship just from, you know, Jerusalem on down, or a democracy where everybody gets to vote and everybody chooses what they want to do. It's a Bible-based, spirit-driven republic. 
The council which decided this case was composed of apostles and teachers who had been prominent in raising up the Jew and Gentile churches with chosen delegates from various places. Elders from Jerusalem and deputies from Antioch were present and the most influential churches were represented. The entire body of Christians was not called to vote upon the question. The apostles and elders, men of influence and judgment, framed and issued the decree which was therefore, thereupon, generally accepted by the Christian churches. So what they decided was for everybody. Difficult matters are to be discussed and decided upon for the whole church. Territories are not free to act out of harmony with each other. Do you think after that they could say, well, at our church we're still going to require circumcision? No. The four servants of God were sent to Antioch with the epistle and message that was to put an end to all controversy, for it was the voice of the highest authority upon the earth. Wow. Number two, lesson from Acts 15, the critical role of the spirit of prophecy. The inspired testimonies are given to clarify and apply Bible truth, not to take the place of it, but to make application in your life. Mrs. White herself even wrote in early writings, page 78, I recommend to you, dear reader, the word of God as the rule of faith and practice. By that word, we are to be judged. God has in that word promised to give visions in the last days, not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of his people and to correct those who err from Bible truth. And notice she adds, thus God dealt with Peter when he was about to send him to preach to the Gentiles. She said, that's what the spirit of prophecy looks like. It's not new light, it's a corrective lens to apply Bible truth in your life. It's fascinating. And perhaps most importantly of all, number three, the converting power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the power to soften hearts and sharpen minds. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The Spirit of the Lord then witnessed to the word spoken and under its influence the council yielded their prejudices and expressed themselves as in harmony with the position of the apostle and sent an address to the churches to that effect. The Holy Spirit can change people's lives. It's a true fact, and it's still true today. So why did he have him, Timothy? Timothy circumcised? Because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. It was a precautionary measure. Paul advised Timothy to be circumcised. He didn't command him. The, the, the issue was on Timothy. Now think about it from Timothy's perspective. We're, we're closing now, I promise, or I'm going to let you go. In Paul's hand is a decree that says you do not have to be circumcised. And Paul wasn't forcing him. But Timothy chose to be circumcised for the furtherance of the gospel. Think about it, friends. He went literally the extra mile. He went farther than was necessary. He did more than what was asked because he wanted to win souls for Christ. I have become all things to all men. Why? That I might by all means save some. Let me ask you a question in these concluding thoughts. First of all, let's make this clear. Timothy was circumcised not for his own salvation, but for the salvation of others. I want you to sink, let that sink in for just a second. He did something he didn't have to do for himself because he wanted to do for somebody else. I believe that we need a generation of Seventh-day Adventists less focused on their rights as Christians and more focused on their responsibilities as Christians. Instead of saying, well, what's the least I have to do? What's the minimum? What's the I have to? 
What about saying, what's the most I can do for the cause of Christ? Is there something more I can give? And it might be in the area of, you know, stewardship, like, okay, my minimum 10%, I met it. Well, what about the rest of your money that you're going to spend on taco, whatever? (laughs) Can't you give a burrito to Jesus? That's what I should have titled it. (laughs) But I mean, isn't there something a step farther that you don't have to do, but you should do? You know what I'm saying? That the cause of God doesn't demand, but the salvation of other people might ride on your self-sacrifice. So that's my closing question. What in your life could you surrender for the sake of others? Seriously, look at your time. Look at your relationships. Look at your money. Look at your, your possession. Look at your capabilities, your creativity, your intellect. What have you put on reserve or kept for yourself that God wants to put to use in his cause? And no, the Lord's not saying, you must give me this or you will be saved. No. Your salvation doesn't depend on it, but somebody else's might. What in your life could you surrender for the sake of others? What sacrifice, perhaps even involving personal discomfort, are you willing to make to reach those who may not know Christ? Friends, our time is up, and I know you have lots of things to do, but I want you to think about that as we leave today. Is there something in your life you could cut that's not required for your own salvation, but for the saving of other people you're willing to give Let me ask you a question. Has today's presentation at least made sense? Was it clear? We'll let that be for now. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for saving us through the faith in Jesus Christ that he gave us the opportunity to express. But Lord, beyond merely our own salvation, Lord, plant in our mind a desire to be salvation for other people. Help us to find ways to be more effective and efficient in your work. Give us the spirit of Paul. Give us the spirit of Timothy. Lord, give us the spirit of Jesus Christ himself, who loved us and gave himself for us. Show us how we can do that better, to more fully reflect your character to hasten the coming of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.